Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Chris Steinley, and he published a book that we're going to read back in 2017 or, or cover. The title of the book is Reclaiming the Rapture, Restoring the Doctrine of the Gathering of the Commonwealth of Israel. And he wrote that with Douglas Hamp. And I interviewed with Douglas, maybe, or Doug Hamp, at least maybe 10 years ago when I was first writing about Crowley. But Mr. Steinley has written many books. I'm going to cover a few of these at the intro. One is Insight and Foresight, a collection of writings that was published in 2013. Also, The Gift of Tongues, published 2018. One in Messiah, Perspectives on Commonwealth Theology, presented at the Denver, Denver Convocation in 2019. There was a group of people wrote for that book. Also, Commonwealth Theology Essentials 2020, Why Most Christians Believe in a Post-Tribulation Rapture 2020. Also, the Rise of Western Lawlessness just came out June 2021. And another one that's coming out later on this month is titled The Forgotten Age of Judah, The Right Standing of the Jewish House in the Second Temple, Temple Period Ignored by the Church. And I believe that's out July 31st, 2021. And he also has a couple other books coming up. The Singularity Prophecy, The Coming Convergence of Heaven and Earth and the Commonwealth of Israel, New Testament. So he's going to define some terms. I read through the book, very interesting book, and definitely uh, he, he convinced me of his outlook so he can talk more about that. So, Mr. Steinle, are you there? Yes, yes. Thank you, William, for having me on the show. I'm very pleased and always happy to share on this subject. As you've mentioned, I've written several books having to do with the rapture, and our subtitle for this book has to do with refocusing uh, what's termed the, the rapture, and it's gotten the connotation of the pre-tribulation rapture. And just let me insert that the reason for that is uh, only those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture really obsess on the rapture itself. Most of the rest of Christianity looks at the resurrection that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll get to that. But all of the Old Testament prophecies have to do with the resurrection and the gathering of the two houses of Israel. And uh, just verse after verse, and we have listings in the book, and I'm going to go over that a little bit. But so what we desire to do is look at the examination of the timing of the rapture and then look at what the whole um, event, we'll say the resurrection rapture, is really described as in the Bible and take the focus back to what it was intended to be. So in order to do that, uh, both Dr. Hamp and I were pastors in Jesus Movement churches that taught the pre-tribulation rapture. And uh, Doug really got into it. He was a, a poster child. He was a golden boy in the prophecy circuits speaking about the pre-tribulation rapture. And uh, he gives his account at the beginning of the book, and he's talking about how uh, kind of backstage you know, with, the, uh, with the pastors going over, uh, well, what, what do you think the main verse is that pins down the timing of the rapture? And none of them could come up with that. And so he really began to question then and, uh, and look at it. Let me just say that in 
the history of the church, there have been several eschatological views having to do with the with Israel and the Jews in the end times. And that really is what differentiates the different uh, theologies, that being Catholic Reformed, uh, which would have the what they call supersessionism or replacement theology, which has to do with um, God rejecting uh, Israel slash Judah altogether and uh, tagging a new body, uh, the ecclesia of Jesus, the church, and uh, never looking back and never expecting the Jews to have any more part in God's plan. On the other hand, there in the 1800s, we have John Nelson Darby, who really codified dispensational theology. And their theory was that God worked with uh, the Jews, and then he was going to focus on the church. But then he was going to take the church away and focus on the Jews again. And that's where we get this idea of the church age and of the, the, rapture, the rapture of the church. That, that terminology is not in the Bible, but, but that really is the focus for the pre-tribulation rapture people. So now, when the, the majority of Christians, which are Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, um, various Orthodox. other groups, yeah, Orthodox, Eastern, yes, the, the majority of Christians around the world, uh, they, they don't see the Jews coming back into the picture and so they don't see a need for the church to be taken away so that the Jews can, can return. And so once you take that perspective away and you look at the verses that are used to support a pre-tribulation rapture, they get really sketchy. They're really sporadic throughout the Bible. And so one of the first things that we, that we have in this book is what uh, Dr. Hamp calls the intimidating list. And so, yeah, we've got 26 verses that uh, the pre-tribulation rapture folks will uh, kind of spout out. And it's, it's really a distraction. It's really a barrage. And the reason for that is these verses back up the idea that there is a rapture. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, that will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And, and Paul says that this mortality must put on immortality. Uh, he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, so we know there's got to be a dimensional change from these physical bodies to some type of glorified or spiritual body. We, we all know that. And so, but nevertheless, uh, what the pre-tribulation rapture folks do is they list these verses that have to do with, uh, that hint at the rapture itself. And they have nothing to do with the timing of the rapture. But they're, they're basically just saying, see, there's a rapture. See, see, we told you there's a rapture. It's right there. Don't you see it? There's a rapture. Well, the, the thing is, we, we basically all agree that there's a rapture, but these verses don't point to the timing of the rapture. And so in this book, one of the things that we have are a chapter called Unmysterious Rapture Timing Verses. And this is going to Old and New Testament verses that do pin down the timing of this resurrection 
uh, and change and the gathering. And, and so, just to, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, the no, thing is, is that the pre-trib rapture was so much made popular by some authors such as LaHaye and Lindsay. So it really is a was, and I think maybe in popular certain popular Christianity, it is considered valid, right? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, one of the one of the flags that goes up right away, and and both uh, Dr. Hamp and I have experienced this, and many uh, uh, pastors and and the leaders have been uh, kind of booted out of the pre-tribulation rapture uh, churches because they believe that the pre-tribulation rapture is tied to the love of God itself. That because God loves his church, he's not going to allow them to go through the tribulation. And so he's going to get them out of here. But what do we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, for instance, that the love of God is manifested and that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life through him? The manifestation of God's love isn't found in the timing of the rapture. The, the timing of the rapture is not a salvation issue uh, whatsoever. But um, they've kind of, the followers, the believers have kind of been programmed and had this ingrained that if anybody speaks against the pre-tribulation rapture, they're really speaking against the love of God. And another reason for that uh, slant, really, is they're equating the whole tribulation and day of the Lord with the wrath of God or the indignation. All throughout the Old Testament, we find the indignation of God appearing at the time of this change of the earth and of, of people as well and the nature of of plants and animals coexisting in the latter chapters of Isaiah and this kind of mysterious event that uh, kind of unfolds into the millennium for those who um, have a pre-millennium, pre-millennial outlook. And so we see that uh, what they claim is that uh, God, uh, that that the church basically isn't appointed for wrath. And we and that is a valid statement. The church isn't appointed to wrath. But if I might, you know, turn to uh, the book of Romans and just read uh, a snippet here from Paul's writings to the Romans from chapter 8. And everybody's familiar with this because uh, President Bush partially quoted this verse after 9-11 and uh, he says right here who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword and he goes on I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those are the words that were truncated by Bush. But what we find here is, is absolute proof that we can't come under the wrath of God by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Spiritually, we're, we're in. We can't be separated from the love of God. So the, the whole conversation about 
the church not being um, put under the wrath of God is a, is a non-starter. It, it is not even part of the conversation. And indeed, we find in the Old and New Testaments that there does appear, especially in Revelation, going back to Isaiah, that there uh, is a hiding in caves. There is a sealing of the holy people so that there's this trauma, what's described as the as the veil coming down, the veil between heaven and earth. First uh, Peter, no, second Peter, Peter describes it as this uh, fire. He says that uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and, and the, you know, the earth is going to be dissolved with and fire and this transition is going to occur. And so God's people are going to be protected through that transition. So these are all things to kind of diffuse the uh, the watcher, the listener of this podcast who who believes in the pre-tribulation rapture and know that Dr. Hamp and I did as well. And we're still saved and uh, we still love the Lord and we're serving like crazy and, uh, and uh, it's all good. Uh, but there are reasons why. We believe what we do, and I, I really like to focus, if I could, William, on on my main reason for that. And so, when you do go to Matthew chapter twenty-nine, I'm sorry, twenty-four, uh, verses twenty-nine and thirty, thirty-one, and it says after the tribulation of those days, and then it's talking about the the darkening of the those sun and moon and it's talking about him sending out his angels and and him and him coming he says specifically the coming of the son of man and the gathering from the four corners of the earth basically of his people and so when we then look at first thessalonians chapter 4 and we start out in verse 13 and we see, he says, that I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is very important because his focus here is those who have fallen asleep. His concern is about the dead. He's, he's not foremost concerned about what happens to the living at the, at the coming of, of the Lord, but what happens to the dead? That's the focus. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about that. So it's it's about comforting the bereaved about the fact that the dead will rise first. And that, that's his that's his argument. That's how he's proving they don't need to worry by by proving that the dead will rise first. Well, how does he do that? Well, we know that he has uh, taught them. Uh, on several occasions when he's been with them and he reminds them of those things uh, in his letters. And so what he's taught them may be very similar to what he spoke to the Corinthians in his chapter in verse uh, 24 of chapter 15, where he says, then, then the end, then comes the end. And what happens here during this, this end? Well, all power and authority, basically, uh, is it comes under the Lord Jesus. Well, well, how does it does how does it do that? Well, Paul pulls from Psalm one hundred and ten, 
where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool or, or subject to you, subjugating all his enemies. And so Paul says the last enemy that will be overcome is death. Now, now in this verse, there's a Greek word, katargeo, and that word means to uh, bring to naught. It's, it's translated abolished uh, sometimes uh, to be rendered ineffective. And unfortunately, the King James translators have translated that destroyed, and that is not correct. And I'm going to I'm going to show you that because when we go to Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen, and we're talking about uh, Jesus uh, partaking and and dying, so that he might again kardegese is the word there render the devil or Satan who had the power of death uh, harmless at that time. Well, this lines up perfectly with what we see in Revelation in chapter 20 there in the opening verses where Satan is bound. He's not destroyed. He's not killed. He's bound. And then when we get to the end of chapter 20, then finally death, Hades, you know, thrown into the lake of fire, that second death, and there's no coming back. There's no resurrection from that baby. But anyway, what we see Paul saying in these writings by using Ketergeo, and in Hebrews as well, which probably is written by Paul, is that there is this um, time of subjugation of all his enemies being made his footstool. And this, this subjugating death lines up then with the resurrection of the dead you see because this happens before you get to the very end where death is thrown into the lake of fire where death is finally destroyed and so it's at the time of the subjugating of his enemies and and so here's what has to happen we read in acts chapter 3 verse 21 that jesus must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. This is another verification. So, so we see from Psalm 110, from what Paul's saying, Jesus must remain at the right hand of God until his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. So when we think of the whole idea of Jesus returning, he's at the Father's right hand. When we think of the whole idea of him coming back into this dimension, actually leaving the Father's right hand, and he's descending from heaven, and he's coming from heaven. Those are the very words that we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, what it boils down to is this is a one-off event when all his enemies are made his footstool. There cannot be two second comings of Christ. There has to be only one, and, and it has to be, he must remain, he must remain in heaven. Until because right, that the pre-tribs is that Christ is coming before the tribulation yes. to rescue people, just to make just to make yeah. that clear to the and, and so what's so very problematic is is the the centerpiece, the bow on their pre-tribulation rapture is the narrative in First Thessalonians chapter four, which says he's descending, which says he's coming. That has to be the second coming because there cannot be 
two comings. So the minute Paul says he's coming, he's descending, he's saying that all those enemies have put under have been put under his feet. Now, what does that do for those Thessalonians who were bereaved, who were concerned about their death? Here's what that means. That Jesus can't descend until that enemy of death is resolved. And that that's why the dead have to rise first. That issue of death has to be resolved first so that Jesus can descend and come because he's stationed till his enemies are made his footstool. He cannot descend. He must remain in heaven. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's, he's giving them the description on a microscopic scale of these events. We have, we have the... Uh, enemies subdued, so the dead rise. Then, now he adds, okay, those who are alive and remain at his coming, then we're going to be now, here's a, here's a real trick. There's a word that's used here that they say, uh, harpazo, all the time. And the word is actually not. The word is harpagesametha, and it's derived from the word harpage. Harpage and harpazo are two different things. If, if Paul had meant that they would be seized or caught, he would have used a word harposthesametha, harposthesametha instead of harpagesametha. And you can look this up. You can go to Verbix and look at the Greek online and go to the first person um, plural. Uh, future passive indicative. That's what that's what harpagesametha is, and you will see that the meaning of that is is being plundered. So the whole this whole phase. Then we've got the dead rising. What's the next phase? It's the change that Paul's talking about in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. It's the redemption of the body, and in the book. It's really marvelous what Paul does because when he talks about the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, almost always he's putting that together with the redemption of the body. So what is the Holy Spirit deposit guaranteeing? It's guaranteeing the redemption of the body, that the purchased possession is going to be changed. The purchased possession is going to basically be plundered, if you would. Uh, we shall all be plundered. And now, does that make sense? Well, yeah. let's, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Harpag, harpazo has to do with snatching and taking away. So if somebody's taken away, it's like they're being kidnapped, okay? That's a, that's a whole lot different than having something plundered from them, something taken from them. What's being taken from them? Their mortal bodies. Their mortal bodies are being, are being destroyed, basically, at that time. In, in order for this transition to a glorified body. So, no, that Paul's really breaking this down. He, he's using these words. And so what's the next thing that happens? Well, we're in the air. Uh, the word that's air that's used there is, is not uranos. It's not the heavens. It's talking about just above ground. So this transition, transition takes place above ground. That's, that's what we know. It doesn't take place underground where the dead were resurrected, where they were, were changed. But now the living 
Now they've been brought up and now we all get changed in, in the air in the same place. Well, where are we going from there? All of the Old Testament verses tell us that we're then being gathered. We're, being, we're going to the gathering. That's the meeting. We're not going off into the heavens. Jesus is coming here. And there's no indication that he's he's doing a yo-yo thing, that he's going to bob back right. up. Right, and but you it, also include in the book that the earth will change, that the yes. heavens change, so a metamorphosis or a, a yeah, whole yeah. different happens. A Paul, whole new yeah, one of the chapters that is in the book has to do with Paul's uh, understanding of these two dimensions of the physical and the spiritual dimension. And he goes into a lot of depth about that. And uh, Ephanerothe is used over and over, uh, appeared, uh, uh, Jesus appeared, or or uh, diff different appearances. And we, uh, that's that uh, Ephanerothe, Ephanerothe, that fan is where we get phantom. Um, but it's not like it's something not real. It's simply a manifestation, a real, a very real manifestation. And so Paul talks about these two schemes of the heavenly scheme and the earthly scheme and how the earthly is first and then the heavenly. And uh, there's just so much packed into this book. Uh, I mean, there really is. There are charts and and uh, pulling these verses together so that people can see how they line up. And uh, right, anyway. and I mean, I think you make the point that there's very little proof for the pre-tribulation rapture. Something else is going to happen at those last seven years, as prophesied. But, but so, but it's interesting. I do think that the pre-trib. Don't you think it's kind of something that these certain people, Christians, find is much more palatable than having uh, the church or people go through a tribulation period? So it's kind of like oh, an okay. easy out. Do you, do you do you have that impression? Um, well, let me make a statement on that, and that is that uh, John Nelson Darby put this together around 1830, uh, suggesting that the Jews were going to go through this horrible Holocaust after the church was out of here. Uh, if that hadn't been, um, if that theology hadn't been built yet, uh, it's very unlikely today, or or even a hundred years, you know, after World War II, it's very unlikely that, that he would have ever suggested that the church was going to get out of here and that the Jews were going to have to go through a Holocaust because they just went through a Holocaust. And that it, it would be so crude to even suggest that, 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 that idea of bringing the Jews back for a tribulation that, that the Gentiles are going to avoid. Uh, that wouldn't be PC. <laughs> the theology would have never been written in the first place. Right. And but I mean, you're, the return of the Jews is prophesied, right? So the return of Jews to Israel. Uh, yes, yes, and 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 it's interesting because the yes return to the land uh, very much so. And so uh, a lot of people look at the, the Jews that have gone into the land right now, and a lot of flags come up uh, because of unbelief, because of uh, behavior that doesn't line up with, with their own law, their own, their own Torah, their own instructions that were given to them in the Old Testament, and they're not living by that. And uh, 
so uh, there are a lot of people that say, well, that's that's uh, that's not the real Israel. They're fakers. They're uh, it's not it's not the real deal. Well, in fact, what we do see in Scripture is this gathering takes place during this time of indignation. Uh, that is a, a time of indignation all over the world in this time of great uh, transition, we'll say. And that's at Christ's second coming. And so we do see the return of the Jews to the land as a precursor, but it began right away after <laughs> the, most of the people who were saved, those first 5,000 that came to the Lord there in Jerusalem, most of them were Jews. There were some from the scattered house of Israel. We know that because Paul addresses them directly. He says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we know that he was addressing some of those who came from all those countries that are mentioned there uh, in the second book of Acts. But most of the church were Jews, and they believed they were seeing the gathering take place. They, they believed the, the fisherman harvest of Jeremiah was taking place and that they were the fishermen who went out then. And that's why Jesus gave the Great Commission. So it was all underway, but it got it got held up. It got it got put on hold. And so uh, you know we can always say, well, that's the will of God. But uh, there were some sinister players. I mean, there were the nations of the world who really came against, specifically the Roman Empire. Uh, no doubt about that. But uh, they kind of quashed the gathering that had begun. So it's a process. When you go to Romans chapter 11 and you look at what Paul says about, and so all Israel will be saved, the deliverer will come out of Zion or for the sake of Zion, as it really says in the Septuagint, and he will uh, take away unrighteousness from, from Jacob. And he goes on to say, this is the covenant. I'll make with them. I take away their sins. And Paul actually is adding that last part, but it lines up with what is being stated from Isaiah chapter 59. He's quoting verse 20. But if you go on to verse 21, it's clearly the new covenant there because he's saying the spirit that I, my spirit that I put upon you, speaking to, to Messiah and my words which, which I put in your mouth, will not depart from you or will not depart from your descendants and their descendants, basically from this time forth and forevermore. So there you have the word written in the heart and the outpouring of the Spirit. It's all happening. You go on to chapter 60 and verse 3, and it says, and, and the Gentiles will come to his light. So what do we know from that? Well, we know that Jesus did come and speak those words. We know that the Holy Spirit was given. We know that the Gentiles did come to his light. So Paul is merely quoting when he says, so all Israel will be saved. He's just quoting the future tense of the prophecy. He's not saying that that is all still on hold and it hasn't happened yet. You see, so it's a process. This process of all Israel being saved clearly began there in the first century. It get, got quashed, and there are some reasons that are in this new book that's coming out at the end of this month, The Forgotten Age of Judah, 
that uh, we're explaining what what kind of happened as the nations came against uh, Judah. But we also explain in our writings on the Commonwealth theology that uh, what a lot of people have observed is that the house of Israel was scattered among the nations. They were mixed. They were they were swallowed up by the nations. And so what is happening with the nations or the, the word Gentiles, that's what that is, ethnos in the Greek that's translated Gentiles. It means nations. So the, the believers among the nations really represents the fulfillment of the house of Israel. And, and so Paul is talking there in chapter 11 about the jealousy about, about us who are now believers among the nations making the, the Jews who have rejected Christ ge uh, jealous. And, and so that's the process that's going on. Now, obviously, as I said before, when you, when you look at Ezekiel 37 and the two sticks coming together and under the United Kingdom of David and a lot of other... Uh, many, many, many other prophecies that we have in this book that have that are listed that have to do with the gathering. You'll see that it's the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, the house of Israel was basically not my people anymore, according to Hosea. And how do they become his people again? Because he says, God promises, but then it'll be said, I'm their God and they'll be my people. Well, how does this happen after they've been swallowed up, after, after they've mixed with the nations? Well, we believe that the what we call the church among the nations, the Gentile church, does represent the house of Israel. Now, not in the way that Mormonism or the uh, I, Brit British identity uh, theologies would take that and, and, and make it genetic or specific to a certain nation. No, we don't believe that at all. But we do believe there's this process of both houses of Israel uh, being saved, being being brought to the Lord. And, and now we have to be careful. Let me just add that there's a difference between messianic salvation and being elected being chosen right, right. and so this is very important we can say that the house of judah we don't have any reason to believe they're not still chosen that they're not still elect we don't think a, a light went on or a light went off you know in their prayer life or though their obedience to the law or the things that were pleasing to god that they were doing you look at the you look at zachariah john the baptist's dad and it says he was blameless and holy and the holy spirit was upon him and well how does that work well, you know it it it, it is it, it's right. so fact. for people who don't know judah and israel israel broke off what i can't remember 600 bc uh i can't remember israel broke off so you're yes, saying yes, that seven. that seven something yeah uh broke off dispersed to the 12 tribes the 11 tribes of israel well broke, 10 10, 10, because we got Benjamin who are counted uh, in the house of Judah. Judah, okay. So they got, so, and Paul was a Benjaminite, right? Or Benjaminite. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> so they, you're saying they spread out, became the nations of whatever, and then, according to your interpretation, remnants of that are coming back kind of to reunite in a, in a kind of a newer. Well, version of Israel. Is that what, we, what we see 
is after a couple thousand years, well, really uh, almost 3,000 years now since uh, the assimilation of the northern kingdom with the nations, that practically everybody, on the, everybody on the planet probably has a DNA from the house of Israel. It yeah, says they say, it they says say they like 2%, 2% of Hispanics, a DNA is Jewish, like Ashkenazi Jewish. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so the Jews also, a lot of them left uh, as well, and especially the Hellenistic Jews who um, believed that they could be um, kind of Grecianized and Romanized and, and not obey all of their law, but still be in with God. And and so a lot of them went other places like Alexandria and Antioch. And uh, anyway, the point is that the fulfillment of the salvation of the house of Israel, we, we believe that we're seeing that. We, we believe that's, that's, that's the church, that, that a lot of that's not waiting to happen. Um, a lot of that has been going on for the last couple thousand years. So you're saying that the Christian church is a representation of Israel. Is that correct? You cut out on me. I was just saying, so you're saying the church and Israel are synonymous. No. Oh, the church. church, Okay. Yes. The church and the house of Israel are somewhat synonymous. It would be very difficult to say that anyone might not be from the house of Israel and it, but we don't base anything on genetics because we're obviously saved by faith. So, so it's just a way of explaining how this lost, uh, these lost tribes could possibly be identified and brought back after they had been assimilated and mixed with the nations. This is just a way of, of explaining that part of it. But the other important part of that is that according to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul describes the commonwealth of Israel, that it was the Gentiles among the nations who were aliens, who were without the promises and without Christ and without God in this world. And And according to Romans, we were grafted in to this olive tree, which is the house of Judah, and, and so somehow, mysteriously, there, there's a bond between those who are elect but not saved and those who are saved. And there shouldn't be enmity between because the verse goes on to say that the blood of the cross broke down the middle wall that had to do with the, um, the doctrinal issues of the law, not necessarily the law itself, but the animosity towards the law that had built up because the Jews detested the house of Israel and and the Sumerians likewise for not obeying the law like they thought they should. When in fact, a little while later, a number of Jews became Hellenistic and they stopped obeying the law uh, to a great degree as well. So, there shouldn't be this animosity between the church and the Jews. So, and there, there's no, there's no time differential. In other words, God didn't put the house of Judah on hold during this 
church age. No, they're right here with us right now. Yeah, and they're elect. They just they just don't believe. It's just like there's a lot of Gentiles who, even though they're in Isaiah 59, uh, of 60, verse 3, I believe, it says the Gentiles will come to his light. So, so we don't see all Israel is saved right now. We don't see that all Gentiles have come to his light. It's a process. I think that there's a significant amount of Jews or Judah that are messianic. I think, think they're public, Absolutely. but I keep hearing numbers, 10%, 15%. I mean, a significant amount. And yes. Uh, yes, I think that's a real change. I think that in the current environment, it's easier to be that way maybe than other situations and persecutions in the past and things like that. But would you say that's your core idea of Commonwealth theology is that Jews and Gentiles or whatever the church uh, shouldn't be considered separate? Yeah, they shouldn't be enemies because that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 2 is saying, that the, the enmity was supposed to be broken down and taken away. And the peace won by the cross. Okay. It says it says right there. And so, how did this happen? How did we get this this uh, animosity? Well, we cover that in in some of our books on Commonwealth theology. But um, that you know, and and so for our pre-trib uh, listeners, watchers out there, uh, I certainly see dispensationalism as a much better theology than supersessionism or replacement theology that would say that God wrote the Jews off altogether as Christ killers. And you see the ramifications of what Luther wrote and uh, the church believed coming out in the Holocaust under Hitler. He was just programmed programs for centuries. A real yeah. persecution, like vicious. Yeah, and there's Holocaust still... was like the worst of it. But... Yes, yes, and, and that that idea sprang up early. You, it goes back to Ignatius, really, of Antioch, and his writings. Uh, he really dissed the Jews and their ways, and and even the Sabbath, and and uh, so these. What ended up happening is is. Uh, a lot of the Hellenistic Jews were brought into the church. They, they really became the Gentile church because they had already kind of separated themselves a little bit from the law. And so they began to see and expound on how Paul said, uh, you know, that uh, you got law and grace and, and uh, laws not there anymore. We're under grace now. And, and uh, they picked up on that, and and at the same time, then the the Jewish Church uh, really started to disintegrate, and it really became the Jews who were keeping the law, kind of against the Hellenistic uh, Jews who became Christians, and. Uh, I mean, and you, and you could yeah. call Paul kind of a Hellenized Jew. I mean, would that be? I think that would be applicable, wouldn't you? Well, I, unfortunately, what we see in Paul is someone who really lived the dead letter of the law. Apparently, he did not have the law written on his heart. It was not something 
done out of love. It was that was foreign to him. And so he went through personally, he went through a black and white change of of uh, coming from a place of just rigid law, uh, zealous uh, to the point of understanding love and grace. And so uh, in his writings, we have to take into account where he's coming from that um, you, if you look in Luke at the beginning of chap, uh, chapter two, I believe, about Zacharias, uh, the father of John the Baptist, and you look in what it says about him, he definitely had the law written in his heart, uh, but Paul, Paul didn't. He didn't, uh, but uh, right, but uh, I mean, you're saying that after his road to Damascus experience that changed or not? Absolutely. Oh, okay. so oh he, that, he, that absolutely changed. But and, when, he, when he speaks about the, the law, he says, and, and obviously it's true, the law can't give life. There, there isn't a law that could get alive, give life, uh, you know, or, or there wouldn't be a reason for, for Jesus to come and, and, uh, and be I thought, our propitiation. Paul, right? Like if you love your fellow man and God, you fulfilled the requirements of the law. Yes. And you followed kind of Paul's journeys too, personally. Is that correct? I mean, you kind of. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes, I did. And uh, I have to say, one of while I was in Israel, uh, one of my trips to Israel, I picked up a book by Risto Santala. He's he's deceased now, but he went over to Israel and, and a couple of different occasions, I think a total of about 20 years, studied a lot of the manuscripts that, that people can't get to unless they're Hebrew scholars and, and, and can kind of stay there and buddy up. And, and uh, he puts together some marvelous observations on uh, the connection between the rabbinical writings and, uh, and the messianic uh, writings of of the bible itself but um yes because you, of you this do talk night about day. that in the book too right you talk about the similarities or jewish messianic end times eschatology and christian right oh yes yes that's one of the things that that we cover is what the messianic expectations were at the time of christ and uh we see these these various things i think uh that were supposed to happen in kind of the order that they expected them to happen in. And that's interesting. That's an interesting study in itself. And uh, also to know uh, their ideas of, of uh, the immortality of the soul and, and some of the things that Paul was speaking against um, in his own writings. Uh, we're at about 45 minutes. Can you take, are you available to take a few questions? There's a question here from uh, Carl. He asks, does the author believe that God's elected a particular group of sinners to believe, or are people elect because they believe? All right. Well, in this new book that's coming out at the end of the month, Dr. Hamp does a great job of explaining uh, election. What election is, is just being chosen from the way that it's been picked up in the Calvinist conversation as as meaning chosen for eternal life or or chosen for damnation that predestination a predestination type of thing and so uh god is sovereign 
you know, I, I don't know exactly how to answer your question because uh, I, I like uh, kind of the visual that uh, was taught to me and the idea of uh, whosoever will being on one side of the, the gate kind of, of, of belief of a profession of faith in Jesus and on the other side of that saved from the foundation of the world that it, it's a lot like if you were watching a basketball game that you pre-recorded and you know at some point one of the guys is going to step outside the line and shoot a three-pointer and you watch this a dozen times and so you know that's going to happen but it, in no case did you make it happen and so god can have complete knowledge of everything and who genuinely believes and and will keep the faith to the end and those who do not it doesn't mean that he that he forced anyone to do that because he's given us free will but nevertheless he knows it with his foreknowledge and uh, i really enjoyed reading this book very fascinating information and i'm definitely convinced in your outlook was there a place, where's the best place to get the book? And do you have social media if people want to reach out or a website? Yes. Um, Amazon. You can uh, go to Amazon. Most of my writings are under C period, W period, C.W. Steinley, Chris Winters Steinley. Uh, just the initials. Uh, you can find my bio page that way and a listing of my books. Um, I'm on Facebook under Chris Winters Steinley. I'm also on Twitter at C.W. Steinley. No periods, just C.W. Steinley. And also have a blog, uh, C.W. Steinley. So uh, C.W. They can go there as well. Gotcha. C.W. Steinley. I'll put that in the, the show notes, the C.W. And again, the title of the book is Reclaiming the Rapture, Restoring the Doctrine of the Gathering of the Commonwealth of Israel, published 2017 by C.W. Steinley. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you.